Please turn in God's Word now to the New Testament and to Paul's letter to the Galatians and chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, it's on page 1171 in the Church Bible. Uh, We come this morning to the end of our series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, again and again, we have seen how these commandments drive us to the gospel. They drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ because they show us our sin, uh, the depth and the breadth of our sin. Uh, And that shows us our desperate need for a Savior who can rescue us from our sins and from the consequences that our sin deserves. And so I want us to think this morning uh, about Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ died to redeem us from the curse of the law. But let's uh, read together now verses 10 to 14 of Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. At this point in Galatians, Paul is dealing with really the central question in religion. The fundamental issue is this. How can a human being get right with God? That's what he is dealing with in this part of the letter. And he sets out two possible answers to that question in verse 11 and verse 12 of Galatians chapter 3. Here are two possible ways to heaven. And they're described by two quotations from the Old Testament, and both of them promise eternal life. In verse 11, Paul says, the righteous will live by faith. And then in verse 12, the man who does these things will live by them. So here are the two possible ways to heaven. Theoretically possible, at least. There is the way of faith in verse 11, and there is the way of works 
in verse 12. Either you trust God or you trust in yourself. And the problem is, as Paul has been arguing in Galatians, this second option, the way of works, the way of trusting yourself and your own efforts, that is not an option for fallen human beings. And yet this is the road that the Galatians are at least in danger of going down, the way of works. And Paul is showing that justification by faith in Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from the curse of the law, that that is the only possibility. That is the only way that a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, can get to heaven. Christ died to redeem us from the curse of the law. So let's ask three questions uh, about this uh, passage, this text, uh, as we think about it this morning. First of all, what was the curse of the law? What was the curse of the law? It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, we need to understand then what that was and why we needed to be redeemed from it. And the answer is found in verse 10. Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, that verse in Deuteronomy 27 comes at a very critical point in the book of Deuteronomy and in the history of Israel. Because Moses here is describing a dramatic covenant service, which is to take place when Israel enters into the promised land of Canaan. And the, the mechanics of the service, the, the order of service, and the rubric of the service are all spelt out by Moses. When they get into the promised land, uh, six of the twelve tribes are to stand on the top of Mount Gerizim. And then the other six tribes are to stand on the top of Mount Ebal. And the tribes on the top of Mount Gerizim are to pronounce blessings upon God's people. And those that are on the top of Mount Ebal are to pronounce curses upon God's people. And these two mountains are a vivid, acted parable of these two ways to live. There is the way of blessing, the way of Mount Gerizim, and there is the way of curse, Mount Ebal. Either you obey the law and you receive blessing, or you break the law and you receive curses. And those curses are listed for us. For example, Deuteronomy 27, 16. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or his mother. And the verse that Paul quotes in verse 10 of Galatians 3 uh, is a, a summary, catch-all statement. Uh, just in case you think of something that isn't spelt out explicitly, Paul says, 
Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law. If you don't keep every single last tiny detail of God's law, then you are cursed. A curse of the law. What does it mean to be cursed? To be cursed means to be condemned to punishment. And those punishments are spelt out in great detail in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We don't have time to read them. Uh, It runs from verse 15 to verse 68 of Deuteronomy 15, a massive, massive chapter of Scripture spelling out in detail the curses, the punishments that come upon those who break the law. God says you will be cursed wherever you go. In other words, there's, there's nowhere that you can hide. There's no one, nowhere you can run to to be kept safe from God's curses. It says in Deuteronomy 28 verse 16, they shall overtake you. You know those dreams that you have when you're being chased by some evil, horrible monster and you just your legs won't work and you can't run or you can run, but no matter how fast you run, this, this thing overtakes you. Well, that's what God's curses are like, he says. Whether you're in the city or out in the countryside, it doesn't matter where you go on planet Earth, God's curses will overtake you. Verse 20, curses confusion and frustration in all you do until you're destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds. That's what the curse of the law is. Destruction, confusion, frustration. And then it it describes all the various many horrible forms in which this destruction comes. The rest of the chapter talks about pestilence, disease, drought, blight, being defeated by enemies, madness, blindness, oppression, futility, working and working and working, and it doesn't doesn't bring any good at all. Invasion, pain, exile. Those are just a few, a selection of the horrible curses that are described here. The curse of the law. And that shows us, doesn't it, how seriously God takes sin. Now, our world doesn't like this. The world doesn't like to think of a God who curses. Our world wants a God who blesses, a God who forgives, a God who doesn't get too upset or uptight about our little faults and failings. Our world likes Mount Gerizim and hates Mount Ebal. People like the idea of blessing. They despise the idea of cursing. They don't want a God who punishes people 
because they don't do every little tiny thing that he says. Perhaps they could tolerate a God who punishes people who don't do some of the things that he commands. They might not mind a God who punishes and curses murderers and pedophiles and rapists and terrorists. But they have no time for a God who curses people because they covet or because they tell a lie or because they don't keep the Sabbath day. No, that's extreme. That's completely unacceptable. That's way over the top. I don't want a God who curses people because they do not continue to do all the things that are written in his law. But the God that we have to answer to is not a sentimental old grandfather who's going to pat us on the back and laugh indulgently and say, well, maybe I was a wee bit unrealistic. Maybe it was a bit unreasonable of me to expect you to do all of that. Sure, as long as you tried your best, as long as you meant well, as long as you didn't really do anybody very much harm, come on in. You're welcome in heaven. That's not the God of the Bible. Our God is a God of perfect, blinding holiness. And for him to demand anything less than perfect obedience would be for him to say that there are some sins and they don't matter. And that would be a lie. That would be a denial of his very being and his character. Every sin, no matter how small it is, is an act of arrogant rebellion against God. His law is not some abstract, impersonal code. It's an expression, you remember, we've seen this uh, over and over again in the commandments. His law is an expression of who he is of his holy character and his being. And when we break any part of that law, no matter how small and insignificant it may seem to us, we are offending the God whose law it is. We're saying something about our attitude, not just to the law, but to the God who gave that law, the God who is the source and the origin of that law. That's why all sin primarily is against God. That's why David, when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah and lied to cover it all up, he said, against you, you only have I sinned. Because first and foremost, every sin is an offense against God. Anybody else that gets hurt, that's collateral damage. The main thing, the worst thing about any sin is that we have broken the law of the holy, holy, holy God. I think I've used this illustration before. When you break the speed limit driving your car and you get stopped by a policeman, the policeman is not personally offended by you speeding. I mean, he's going to give you the three points, the fine, whatever. 
but he's not personally offended by the fact that you've done this. But if you start insulting his wife, well, then that's a very different story, and he's going to be enraged against you. And when we sin, when we break God's law, that is deeply personal to God. It's not that we have just been caught doing the, 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 the spiritual equivalent of speeding down the motorway. It is personal to God, and it arouses all of God's anger and his holy jealousy for his glory. When we lie, we're saying to the God who is truth, that's what I think of you and your holy being and your holy character and your holy truthfulness. God doesn't come along with a fine or a ticket like some divine policeman. He curses. He rejects. He punishes with eternal torment creatures who dare to disregard what the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, has said. Sin is not a small thing. It is a cosmic offense. It is an act of cosmic treason against the Lord of infinite glory, who is infinitely worthy of all of our respect and our admiration and our loyalty and our love. Failure to obey this God at every single point, no matter how small it may seem to us, is nothing less than cosmic revolt. What is the curse of the law? It is the punishment that we deserve for breaking any part of God's law. And then a second question, who is under the curse of the law? Who is under the curse of the law? And the simple and terrible answer is everyone. Everyone. Verse 10, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But hold on a minute. Does verse 12 not say that the person who obeys God's law will live? Well, yes, it does. The one who does them shall live by them. That's true. If someone could do that, if someone could keep the law perfectly and never sin, then they would have the right to go to heaven. Their obedience to the law would have earned them their place in heaven. The problem is that there is no such person. No ordinary human being can possibly keep God's law perfectly because we're born with a fallen nature that makes us sin so that we don't even want to sin. We don't even want to keep God's law by nature. We don't even want to want to keep God's law by nature. And even if we did want to, we couldn't do it. And so we are all under the curse of the law. And that's why Paul says that it is futile to rely on observing the law to be made right with God in verse 10. It's because it can't be done. To tell someone 
that you get to heaven by being good is like saying, fly to the moon. It is impossible. We don't have the ability to do it. And this is at the very heart of the folly of the false teaching at Galatians. These false teachers were saying, you need to keep the law in order to be saved. And Paul says, but the law can't save. All the law is able to do is condemn. It just shows us again and again in every single commandment how far short we have fallen. The law can only bring curse upon a human being by nature, not blessing. And that's the folly, isn't it, of so many deluded people, poor people today, and they honestly think that they will get through meeting God on the day of judgment because they're not all that bad, because they've not done anyone any harm. They're relying on their own law-keeping even though they don't even meet their own standards, let alone the standards of the Ten Commandments. They don't understand that God's law requires them to be as holy as God himself is. We've been convicted of that, haven't we, in, in our study of these commandments over and over again. The sins that are forbidden, not just the, the particular final form of the sin that's described in the commandment, but all the sins that contribute to it or lead up to it, and, and, and then the, the duties, the corresponding virtues that the commandments require of us, and not just externally in our actions, but in our thoughts and our desires and our feelings. Who is under the curse of the law? We are all under the curse of the law by nature. We cannot possibly keep the law. And so we are under the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Who is under the curse of the law? And then thirdly, positively, how are we saved from the curse of the law? How are we saved from the curse of the law? We've seen our desperate situation, it's a grim, grim plight, isn't it? What hope could there possibly be? And in and of ourselves, we don't have any hope. There is nothing that any of us could ever do to save ourselves. But God does what we cannot do. And that is the good news of the gospel. All of this so far has been the bad news, which is the background to the gospel. But here is the good news. Into our hopelessness, God reaches down and he saves us. He doesn't leave us under a curse. He doesn't leave us doomed to destruction. He's not content, although he would be perfectly just to do it, but he's not content just to show his wrath. He also is kind and merciful and gracious, and he has done something to deliver his people from the curse of his own judgment. How, how can we be delivered from the curse of the law? What hope could there possibly be? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There's the solution. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is a word that comes from the slave market. The slave was sold by auction to the highest bidder. It wasn't cheap to buy a slave. You had to pay more than anyone else was willing to pay. You had to pay more than anyone else was able to pay. It was far from cheap for Jesus Christ to save his people from the curse of the law. What was the cost? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the price. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died the death of an accursed man. Paul says that was evident from his death. Second half of verse 13. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What does that mean? It's a quotation again from Deuteronomy. From Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. The law said that after a criminal was convicted of a capital crime and put to death, his corpse was to be hoisted onto a stake or onto a tree. And that was to be a sign, a visual sign that that man had been justly condemned and put to death as a transgressor of God's law. Hanging the body on the tree didn't make him cursed. It was proof that he was already cursed. And Paul sees Jesus being nailed to the wooden cross, the tree, as the fulfillment of that practice. Jesus was hung on the cross because he was already cursed by God. He was crucified because in the sight of God, he was a transgressor. How could that possibly be? How could Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, be cursed? We've seen that the curse of the law rests upon the man who doesn't keep the law perfectly. But Jesus did keep the law perfectly. So how then could he be cursed? Paul says he became a curse for us because he was standing in your place. He was taking my place. He wasn't acting on his own behalf. He was acting as our substitute. That's why he was cursed. On the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself. And when the Father looked at his Son on the cross, he saw all your and my vile, commandment-breaking rebellion and failure. He saw all our sins, and he poured out his wrath against Christ instead of us, so that the curse, the punishment, the destruction, the pestilence 
fell upon him instead of us. Our sin, our guilt, our hell, the hell of all his people was placed on Jesus Christ. And all his righteousness and all his blessedness was given to us. It's as if Jesus was guilty of all those things listed in the law that bring God's curse. Deuteronomy 27, there's a long, long list of them. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord. And at the cross, God cursed Jesus as if he had made this abomination. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And on the cross, Christ was treated as if he had dishonored his parents. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Can you imagine Jesus Christ perverting justice due to a widow? And yet on the cross, he's cursed as though that's exactly what he did. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Jesus, who went around doing only good to everyone, who was a blessing to everyone that he met, and yet he is cursed again and again and again as if he has done all these things. And so all the curses listed in that long, long chapter in Deuteronomy 28, all those curses are poured out upon Jesus, the beloved Son of God. The infinitely blessed one becomes the infinitely accursed one for our sake. Deuteronomy 28 verse 20, The Lord will send on you curses until you're destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. And that curse fell upon Jesus Christ at the cross. He suffered the physical agony, the torture, the torment of the cross. He suffered the defeat at the hands of his gloating enemies. He endured the drought of thirst. Deuteronomy 28, 29 says, You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And on the cross at noonday, Jesus Christ was plunged into darkness as God the Father poured out his wrath upon this accursed sin-bearer on the cross. If ever there was a man who did not prosper in his ways... It was the Lord Jesus Christ during those three hours of terrible darkness on the cross. Just as Deuteronomy 28 predicts all his property was seized by others. Not that he had a lot of property. But that the clothes that he stood up in were stripped away from him. And divided out among his enemies. He was sent into the most terrible exile of all not into a captive land, not taken captive into a foreign land, but cut off from God his Father, separated from God the Father in the exile of hell. Deuteronomy 28, 45, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you 
and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he had commanded you. But Jesus had obeyed. He had kept the commandments, but he was punished. He was cursed by God as though he had not for us, for our sake. It's like a man who jumps on a grenade to protect others around him. And the blast of that grenade rips through his body and annihilates his organs and his body absorbs the blast of that to minimize the hurt and the damage to those around him. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He jumped on the grenade of the curse. He absorbed the curse of the law into his own body. And he shielded us from the horror of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How amazing our salvation is. What an amazing gospel. What a gracious God we serve. What a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus Christ. For you and I today to be right with God, men and women and young people and children like us who once were under the curse of the law, and now we're redeemed, and now we're righteous and blessed by the Father. What a wonderful salvation. And if you're not a Christian today, you need to understand what a wicked, wicked thing it is to spurn this salvation, to reject all of this. Jesus Christ is offering himself to you today. He's saying, I will jump on the grenade of God's curse for you so that you don't have to be cursed. What a wicked thing it is to reject that, to say, I don't want it. You keep your salvation. I'll stand before God on the day of judgment on my own account. What a wicked thing. And what a foolish thing to bear the curse yourself to all eternity when someone has died to redeem you from that curse. And if you continue to reject Jesus Christ, if you continue to turn your back on this good news, then the day will come when you will hear God say to you, depart from me, you accursed, into the lake of fire. And you'll remember this moment and all the other moments when the gospel was offered to you and to all eternity with gnashing of teeth and endless weeping, you'll think back and say, why did I not accept? Jesus died for the curse. He became a curse. He endured this so that I wouldn't have to. And I turned my back on it. What a foolish and wicked thing to do. 
But for those of us who are Christians, doesn't it fill your heart with wonder and love and praise? Does it not make you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ all the more, to commit yourself to him afresh, to be converted, if it were possible, all over again? Doesn't it humble you? Doesn't it make you hate your sin all the more? Those tiny little sins that we just indulge and turn a blind eye to. The Holy One, the Blessed One, became a curse so that we might be forgiven for all of those sins and experience only God's blessing instead of God's curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we receive blessing and not curse, because he received curse and not blessing at the cross. And Lord, we can never think about this too much. We can never understand it fully. But we pray that the things that we have been reminded of today will stir up our, our minds and our hearts, uh, our emotions as well as our thoughts, so that we might understand and think about these things more, more deeply, uh, more sensitively, more biblically, that we would have a, a, a more full-orbed picture of all that Christ did for us at the cross but we pray, Lord, that it will not just be an exercise in our minds, but we pray that our hearts would be drawn out to love our Savior far more as we reflect on all that he endured uh, in our place. We thank you for sending your Son at such infinite cost that he would become a curse for us. We deserved the curse he did not, and yet you have been so merciful to us. We thank you for this great salvation. Please, Lord, help it to be more precious to us and help us to want to share this good news with those who are still under the curse of the law and headed for uh, an eternity of accursedness. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.